Welcome to Northwest Prime, bringing Seattle to the world and the world to Seattle. I'm your host, Lori Ness, a soldier on the front line of the mainstream. You can listen to this and other shows at northwestprime.com, and be sure to stay with Seattle Wave Radio 24-7, 365, for more great music and interviews. We're starting a movement of kindness, and we want you to join us. Let's get this show started. I'm joined today by Dr. Pepper Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz received her Ph.D. in sociology from Yale University and is a professor of sociology at the University of Washington. She has authored 16 books, and recently she has co-authored the New York Times bestselling book, The Normal Bar. Their team compiled the most extensive and groundbreaking data for uh, romantic relationships ever conducted. And they found some really amazing similarities in what makes for a happy couple. We're going to talk about that today. So thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. So um, The Normal Bar is the name of the book. I'm reading it. I absolutely love it. I haven't finished, so don't tell me how it ends. But uh, (laughs) actually, there's so much great information. I've just made notes, and it's it's amazing. You compiled this information from not only the United States, but from all around the world. Yeah, we have at least 10 countries, um, you know, Australia, Brazil, England, France, Germany, Spain, um, China. We're, we're, it's, it's, it's pretty much of a worldwide study. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been anything like this done and then compiled, I don't think, in, in book form for people to kind of follow along and, and, and see how they fit and how their relationship fits in, in terms of of being normal. But there is kind of a formula that that happy couples over time all mostly seem to fall into. It's true. There's a lot of normal out there, and we're we're saying if you like the way you do your everyday normal, it's fine. It's working for you. But for most extremely happy couples, and we looked at couples that range from unhappy to sort of happy to quite happy to very happy to extremely happy, we looked at the extremely happy ones, they do seem to have some commonalities. And we thought, well, let's show people in this country and others, uh, in the United States and others, um, what seems to work, and if there's advice uh, apropos to getting to that place, we'll give it. And if anybody wants it, great, but at least it's out there for people to look at. Yeah, and, and that's what I liked about this book was um, a lot of your couples kind of shared information on how to maybe tactfully approach certain subjects that kind of worked for them with, with their partner. Um, because a lot of times, and, and what you kind of found was, Sex wasn't maybe the number one priority for even male and females, although it's obviously extremely important, but communication was a big factor. That's what everybody said, men and women. I think sometimes women are surprised at that. They think that they're the only keepers of communication. But it all starts there. If you can't work things out, if you don't understand each other, if you don't feel like you're linked in um, understanding and sympathy, then you feel like you're either alone or with a stranger. And if you if you can't remediate something, if you can't see a problem and fix it, you know, nothing else matters. Well, I, I was really surprised by how much men identified with communication. That was an eye-opener for, for me personally. 
Yeah, there's a lot of things that men, I think, get a bad rap on. Um, one of them is communication. I, they may have a different style. That doesn't mean they don't want to feel like they're communicating. You know, there are differences in male and female style, but the bottom line is, can we talk? Do we talk about things? Can we reach each other? And men feel it as much as women do. Another thing I think that men are dinged for is they're, they're not thought of as, rom as romantic as women, but in our study, we found the men were actually more romantic than women, more likely to feel um, that romance and affection uh, were not as much as they wanted. And but, uh, one of the things you guys suggested was to sit down with your partner and find out what each one of you interpreted as romance because it was different for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, you often wonder, like, are these two people really together? You know, why haven't <laughs> they talked about, you know, how do you want to be loved? What are the things that can be done for you in terms of uh, making you feel special? Is it is it sexuality? Is it gifts? Is it telling you I love you? Um, do you need it every day? Are extremely happy couples tell each other every day that they love each other? It's usually on every phone call. Um, is it is it that you want time, quality time? Do you want your your guy or your woman not to be distracted when you're here? I mean, we have a national disease called you know cell phones and and iPads and uh, Blackberries and things like that that has swept the world really, probably even more so in Asia. And a lot of time, you know, our partner is in the same room but not really focused. They're doing all this other stuff. So what is it that you feel is the most important thing? Write a list from, you know, one to five, rank them in order, and see if you could also guess what your partner would put on their list, one to five. You'd be surprised how many people don't even get half of it right, even married for a long time. Exactly. Well, because what's romantic to you, you might be doing that for your partner, and they might not be picking that up at all, but that's because it's not romantic to them, so they're not even getting it. Yeah, we had a woman who... Uh, took our study, did it, and she said, you know, she was busting her butt trying to get home to have a hot meal on the table, and she was always harassed and, you know, running, you know, behind time. And when they started talking about what was most important to them, what was the number one thing that they, they would like to change in their relationship, his was, gee, I wish you weren't harassed and, you know, on the edge all the time. And hers was, you know, I, I'm going crazy trying to have a hot dinner. Here when you know coming back from work and the kids and everything, and he says, "I don't care if we have a hot dinner." And she says, "You don't." <laughs> she thought it was a big important thing to him. No, it was an optional thing. He'd rather have her in a good mood. And that all goes back to communication again. Right, right. But they weren't. They were feeling. They were building a case in their own mind, but they weren't talking. Wow. And one of the things that you find in your book is little changes make a big difference. Just like that, that was a, a little change. But, but but what you found over and over again was it was the little things, not the big fancy Oh, my gosh. I think people think change is so hard that they think they, they don't start. But, you know, one of the places we found, like, really important little changes were important were in affectionate behaviors. Our extremely happy couples all do a lot of happy, uh, are, do a lot of affectionate behavior. They they do public displays of affection. They hold hands in public. They kiss or hug on seeing each other. They say I love you every day. They um, cuddle. They kiss. 
They kiss passionately every so often. They do things that are um, warm and sweet, like giving gifts, um, even if it's like a little thing. Like, gee, I, I saw this candy bar you really like, and I picked it up on the way home because I know you don't find them that often. All of those little things, we found just one thing, just holding hands when you're sitting at the table or walking down the street can make you feel so much warmer and more open and soothe you so much that some of the things you had trouble discussing you can now discuss. Not a big deal, the holding hands, and yet people forget. They stop doing it. You know, one of the things we found with our couples over 50, about 50% of them who used to hold hands don't do it anymore. They just sort of get into bad habits, and then they don't think it's important. But these little things are really important. And you also said pet names, that that, uh, your happy couples use pet names a lot. Oh, it's true. I mean, it really is true. They like to call each other sweetheart or honey or, you know, nicknames. We also found that of the people who didn't use uh, pet names, 50% of them wish their partner would. So just saying honey, sweetie, lover, cutie, handsome, you know, all of those things, saying those as your as your name for somebody, just warms people up. Mm-hmm. And, again, there's, it's absolutely free to do that. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything to say honey. Wow. Now, at, at at what point do do you find though that that maybe couples might need a therapist? Because if if they're trying all these things, and and they still feel like they're not happy, uh, because a lot of these things are kind of self self medicated. You can self medicate yourself, um, and and fix your your normal. But but when does it move out of that realm to where maybe you need professional help? Well, I think if you're stalled. If you have the problem over and over and everybody seems immovable about it, then I think, you know, you've done what you can do, you know, is not, is too. And you need somebody else who can sort of put their, metaphorically put their arms around the couple and say, okay, we're in this together. Let's figure out, you know, where we can go uh, where both people feel good. Not necessarily a compromise, but rather a change that both people feel has something in it for them as well. Because a lot of times people just can't. They're too angry. Um, sometimes with sex, for example, people haven't had sex in so long, they're they're literally embarrassed to start. They don't know how to do it themselves. It's, it used to be something, and for various reasons, illness, anger, infidelity, whatever started it, they don't seem to be able to get permission to be intimate with each other without a therapist's help. Um, if some somebody feels overwhelmed by their partner, then you know, he or she has no give or take or they're, you know, they treat them with contempt or in some way this person doesn't seem to monitor their own interaction with them and, it, and, it, and it's just going from bad to worse. You know, it's like it's like if you needed some surgery. You just, the longer you leave it, so the worse the problem gets and then surgery turns into something that's mundane to something that has high risk involved. And and that's what I'd say, that everybody needs a third party sometime. And when you're feeling hopeless or stalled or you don't, you both have some goodwill left but you don't know how to address it, you know, going to a third party is really important. And sometimes, you know, your local city or county will have subsidized help. So it's not always expensive. 
and you also found out that even couples who identified themselves as unhappy, when they started implementing little changes like holding hands or pet names or carving out a little bit of time for each other or the basic communications on what one found as romance or the other one did, that started changing them out of the very unhappy state back over to to happy couple, and they were able to salvage their relationship. It's really true. Even something like re, any of the ones you mentioned, but also like reinstituting date night. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to plan anything. It isn't spontaneous. And I'll say, well, when you were dating and you were looking forward to seeing this person you were so interested in a week or so, it didn't take anything away that you planned it. It made you anticipate it more. So I think the idea is that you plan something that is inviolate date night. Once a week would be at least um, – uh, the least I would say, but, but but even more than that. Maybe it's just two hours, like lunch in the middle of the day together, if that's possible, and and talking and, and just enjoying each other, figuring out new things to do. I mean, one of the things there's been some research on is that couples uh, do best, seem most bonded when they try something new together. You know, stop boring each other. <laughs> and create something mm-hmm. where you're experiencing the world together. It takes a little bit of innovation, but not much. Definitely. Well, and, and even in your book, you found, you know, just so maybe someone who might be unhappy, even happy couples say that somewhere in their relationship they've contemplated breaking up. And that's that's normal to have had those thoughts, even for happy couples. Yeah, it's really amazing. More than half of the extremely happy couples, not even just the happy couples, um, have thought of breaking up um, at some point in their relationship. You know, look at creating a lifetime relationship isn't easy, and sometimes there's outside things like losing a job or having a sick kid or, you know, going through some depression or whatever, you know, creates problems in the couple or they, you know, that. There's a you know a long laundry list of things I could give that could make people doubt that this should keep going on, but I sometimes think the difference between couples that break up and the couples that re-knit and become more happy is, you know, how hard they try. Now I'm not talking about you know alcoholism or or stuff where the person's abusive, but but when couples sometimes feel like you know is this all there is, if they recommit to finding out how much more they could offer each other. As you say, go to a therapist if they need to. Um, they'd be surprised what a relationship can do in terms of being rejuvenated. I think when people are hopeless, they think, "Oh no, this this can never work." But I've seen things turn around 180 degrees. Yeah, and it just takes. Well, you you just start with little baby steps, and and if both of you are on that, you know, you want that. You have a a mutual. Um, uh, a desire to keep the relationship going. It's pet names, holding hands, and now we will talk about sex because it does definitely factor into this. And the and the and the happy couples, they're having sex. They're having sex a lot, actually. <laughs> the extremely happy couples. <laughs> and I think it's a it's kind of a loop. I mean, one is when you're extremely happy, you want to make love to your partner, but also when you have sex, you you really actually stir your whole endocrine system in the right way. It you produce dopamine, which is the love and craving hormone. You produce oxytocin, which is the bonding and contentment hormone. 
you suppress cortisol levels, which means you calm anxiety, you feel more, um, you, you, you don't feel anxious, you feel calm and you feel contentment. Those are all chemicals that your body produces when you're making love. And so there literally is, I think, a physiological reinforcement of the relationship as well as an expression of the relationship. And they're having sex like three and four times a week seems seems to be the magic number. Now, the, everyone always seems to be shocked by that number, but people are, I mean, it was an anonymous survey. I mean, there was no reason for them to, you know, um, not be truthful in the amount of times that they're having sex, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So we need to get our well, minds around that probably number. Is- is a little different for people who are older. You know, I mean, that's everybody. That's all ages. So some of the older people might take that number down a little bit. Maybe it's four and a half times a week. I don't know. But <laughs> but it is common, and it is often, because I think it keeps reinforcing the relationship. And I also think a lot of people talk about sex when they're not having a lot, because they're complaining. But the people who are having very active sex lives probably are not bragging. I mean, you know, I... I remember it was once on a TV show with three women, and they they asked us how our sex life was. It was many years ago, and the first three women said, terrible, and they went on and on about how terrible it was. And, you know, my sex life was great, and I, I felt so intimidated to say it after, you know, <laughs> after that. I said, well, well, mine's good. Mine's good. And my husband at the time said, good, when I got home, good, just good, you know. <laughs> but I was I was feeling like, you know, sort of the – the whole expression had tapped it down so much that it sounded conceited to say, oh, it's wonderful, and we make love all the time. So I think people often, um, they may inflate how much they do it, but they also deflate it and don't talk about it when it isn't going well. Right. And then another thing you found with happy couples was they they don't wear clothes when they go to bed either. They They like to sleep nude. Yeah, not all of them, but a majority of them do. I think it's interesting. Um, or at least half nude a lot of them. First of all, I think it, it, it says, you know, I'm available, I'm ready. I, I like having my body next to your body. It's a it's a more open door than, you know, going in there in flannel from head to toe. Um, and then it's easy. I mean, you you turn over and it's skin against skin, and even if you weren't thinking about it, you go like, hmm, <laughs> well, let's maybe think about this. So it sort of, sort of brings up the idea and it and it and it shows that the person is is open to the idea and then you know our bodies do react to each other so it's all in all I think um, a great thing I also think that people who who don't go to sleep nude or partially nude um, are often inhibited about their bodies and they're they're less likely to share them and so if you feel like you wouldn't feel good nude with your partner um, and it's not about being cold or something like that, then I think that's something to think about because sometimes you have to work these things out with yourself before you can change it with a partner. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, a lot of times, isn't even our partner. It's it's about us. And a lot of times, especially, I mean, I don't know if men do this, but women overthink things a lot. Yes, it's true. Women do. They're way down the road worrying about this or that, and he won't like this, and my skin looks like that, and, you know, I don't want to do this position because my thighs look like that. And he's going like, I just want to have sex with you. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not thinking about any of that, but she's got a whole a whole storyline, and he's not, 
he doesn't those things aren't important to him. He just wants to have her in his arms and and have pleasure and and she's thinking about a lot of things that really don't have to be brought into the equation. Right. How much or have you seen any change with uh well especially women um with with the whole Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon? And the reason I ask this is because you guys actually have a survey on your uh, thenormalbar.com. You have several surveys going that you want people to participate in, but one of them is is about women who've read the Fifty Shades of Grey book. Right. Well, what interesting um, statistic I thought you were talking about was, you know, we asked people if they would be interested in kinky sex. We didn't mm -hmm. describe what kinky sex was. We just asked them. And you know, way in the 90 percentile of men said, yeah, I think it was 97 or 95 or something, and something in the 80 percentile of women. So very high for women, too. Now, the interesting thing is we took that questionnaire before Shade, Fifty Shades of Grey came out. So this was not influenced by Fifty Shades of Grey. We actually added that questionnaire after the initial gathering of data had been done. So I sometimes think people, you know, are, are kind of interested in pushing the envelope a little more um, having something a little bit more daring and um, outrageous, you know, in terms of their own background, but but they're embarrassed to say it. They don't know how it would sound, even with their partner. They they think like, you know, what will he think of me, or what will she think of me? And also, I mean, maybe somebody brought up something that was a little bit on the edge, and the other person didn't feel like it at that time, or that wasn't the particular thing they wanted. They said no, and then then they're like, you know you know, freaked out about it after that. So we find that the actually that women and men were very interested in kind of erotic adventure before Fifty Shades of Grey and, of course, after Fifty Shades of Grey, a lot of them started talking to each other about it and so experimenting a little bit more. That was actually a very interesting chapter in the book, and it was it's called Let's Get Physical, Maybe Even Kinky. And you, you approach the subject really, really well because um, everybody has their bound of, of normal and what they're willing to do. But it was an extremely high statistic with men and women. Um, yeah, it was like 97% of men said, heck yeah, and and 80% of, or 86 or, or yeah, about 86% of women were like, heck yeah, too, you know. So, um, but like you said, it was, they kind of needed back to communication again on how to actually get there, probably because the woman's thinking, geez, if I open this door, where is he going to go? And and he's just saying, please open the door, you know, just he, he even crack the door open a little bit. That's right, exactly. And I think I think men are very appreciative of, of a partner who is willing to be playful in bed and, and, and just talk about it. Women might just say, look, I'd like to try X and I'd like to try Y. But Q doesn't interest me, and I, I would feel safer if we just took Q off the table, you know, and, and looked at some of this other stuff. And he's thinking, fine, you know, let's try this other stuff. Um, and and just saying it, you know, getting getting into a zone where you feel um, you can control your choices and what happens in ways that make you feel free then to experiment the stuff you are interested in. Mm -hmm. And and for those who read Fifty Shades of Grey, communication was a really huge part of their relationship. And they actually sat down, you know, and listed things out. I will do this. I won't do this. And and Anna, 
she was embarrassed in the beginning, but she had a few drinks and she loosened up a little and then she could kind of verbalize those things. Okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try that or maybe, but, um, but I, I think it was a good representation of, you know, a lot of women in general who haven't been so um, experimental in their sex life. Maybe um, you, we could kind of identify through Anna, but it all went back to communication and feeling comfortable with your partner and, not maybe being judged. I know women are always afraid of being judged, and uh, but maybe sometimes it does take a drink or two to loosen you up, just just so you can get the conversation started. Yeah, I think champagne is a great aphrodisiac, mostly just because it gets you in a good mood, relaxes you a little bit, uh, gets you you know not tipsy, but but just feeling good. You know, you don't want to be drunk when you make decisions, but you do want to feel you know a little bit of of ease and playfulness and, and, you know, a drink will do that. Um, but I think it's true. I, I mean, I think it's it's a good thing that you brought up from the book because, you know, while everybody gets off on the S&M part of it and some of it's, you know, a little much for, for a lot of people, but, but everything was negotiated. Everything was said. And when he went too far or, you know, didn't quite listen to her, you know, then she backed off the relationship entirely. So, um, yeah, it was like, let's talk about this. You know, I often think we tell our teenagers, you know, you have to be able to communicate for safer sex and use of condoms and whatever. But the fact is that they're much more into that kind of communication than older people are. And I think that, you know, we tell kids, if you can't talk about it, you can't negotiate it, don't do it. I think we could say that about people too, adults too, like, you know, you sh- sex is, is something that, that profits. It gets better with communication. So so if you're not being able to talk about it, um, maybe you need to get help because you do need to have help to talk about it to actually say what you need and how you like it and what feels good to you and what your fantasies are and how would you like to, you know, play with some of those fantasies. Did it seem like Americans were, were more conservative in their thinking than the rest of the world? Because I noticed like France and Spain, Italy, they tend to be real kind of open and amorous. Well, it's true. France, Italy, and Spain are actually very different. They are the most, um, I would say, the most at ease, um, the most um, sexually playful, the most open about talking about sex the most romantic. I mean, they really are different from everyone else. We are, you know, we're sort of in the middle. Um, We're not as uptight as Asia. Asia is much more constrained than we are. Our Chinese data is very good, and, you know, there's a lot of of many fewer people there who would, let's say, openly show affection, et cetera. Um, And then, um, you know, we're sort of a little better than some of the European countries, but most of the Latin countries are, are much more um, free about that topic than we are. So, so yeah, we're, we're prudish in many ways, although not as prudish as some other places. We're getting better. Sorry? I said um, we're, we're, we're getting better. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we are because we're talking about it. It's on TV. Um, there's sex education more in the schools. Uh, friends talk to each other more about these things, um, conversation even among friends or on the Internet. I mean, we're we're getting more comfortable. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to 
hit on a little bit about trust because your your statistics found that men and women both both had issues with trust. It just wasn't paranoid women, but but men had a little bit of trust issues as well. Yeah, I think um, I think they have trust issues, and to some extent, men and women have every right to have trust issues mm-hmm. um, because there is a lot of lying going on. I mean, we. We thought it was interesting that it didn't differentiate between extremely happy couples and not happy couples, whether or not they lied to each other. People do a lot of sort of, you know, lie to get along kind of stuff. Now, our unhappy couples were much more likely to have major secrets than minor ones. But, you know, we don't hear the whole truth from our partners, and there are a number of people who who have had extramarital relations that they're partner doesn't know about but worries about so you know you know trust is is kind of a an interesting thing our our extremely happy couples were more likely to trust each other less likely to have major secrets but they were also quite likely to have you know minor secrets that their partner didn't tell them about like you know what a dress really cost or what time they they really thought they were going to get home and stuff like that well, what I really loved about this book was that you give people permission to find a new normal, to recreate what is normal for them. They don't have to stay where they've been, and that normal can change. If, if, you know, if you want to change it today and it's not working next week, you can change it again. And, and you were so great about giving people the freedom, and and, and I want to go back to that word permission, because I I just feel like people don't feel like they have the permission. They just get locked into, well, this is our way, but but it doesn't have to stay like that. Well, I'm so glad you're emphasizing that, because, of course, that's exactly what we wrote the book for, to give people permission to change. You know, let me give people an example. You know, two people get divorced because they don't get along, and then they remarry, and their ex-spouses can't recognize them. They're only they're totally different, you know. He didn't like exercise. Now he's exercising. She didn't, um, you know. She wasn't very social. Now she's social. I mean, what happens? Is it just another person, or is it just permission to be in a different relationship and act a different way? They always had that inside them. It's just that they didn't know how to bring it out in their relationship. If they can consider, you know, revising who they are, how they live, how they put their time together how they talk together, how much sex they have, what they do. It's all up for grabs. There's a a famous quote I love. It's by Lillian Hellman, and she meant it in a different context, but I love it. Uh, The quote is, people change and forget to tell each other. And so I think there's that going on, too. Over the life cycle, you know, we're different than we were in our teens, our 20s, our mid-20s, our late 20s, our 30s. Every five years or so, life changes, and we may want something different than we signed up for, and and our partner might too. But going back to communication, if you don't if you don't discuss these things in a in a nice way, like you know before they're a crisis, but you know you know I'd really like to to do something different. I'm not too happy about you know what we're doing with our spare time. I'd I'd like to do some new things, or I'd I you know I don't feel you're really enjoying yourself when we do this. You know, are you? I want to know. I want to see if we should change something because I'm not enjoying it that much either. You know, all these are the kind of decisions where people can can change. They really, really can change and, and can really be at a whole different level of happiness.
And you don't have to leave the relationship to reinvent yourself. No, no. I mean, I think that's what happens sometimes when people did and they look at their partner and suddenly their partner's doing all the things that they that they had thought about they wanted their partner to do and they go like, Well, why weren't they that with that like that with me? Well, partly they weren't asked. You know, partly they weren't right. given the opportunity, partly they didn't know they had the opportunity. So we hope that this book will get people talking and see, you know, if they're where they want to be. Absolutely. And and, and again what I really loved about it is um, another thing that I love so much about, I'm still reading it, oh, I'm making notes all over the place, but is that, um, and I've been married 27 years to, to my wonderful husband, but um, I started holding his hand more, and I, and I noticed that he really liked that. And then um, yesterday, just out of the blue, he brought me flowers. You know, he's like, I just thought you would like these. And, and I, I thought we were pretty happy anyway, but I sure got happier when uh, when little things like that started. You know, I'm like, I'm even happier now. But it, it just started by holding his hand on the way into the supermarket, you know. At first he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? But uh, but then he just dug it. I mean, he, he, you know, it kind of threw him off there at first. But then it threw me off a little bit when he brought in flowers. But, you know, it's just like I did one thing and then he did one thing and then, you know, it just kind of goes from there. And we were, and I, I thought, happy anyway. But, but it, it's it's just taking a, a, a bigger look at things and, and, and wanting that person to know, you know, I am happy with you, and I'm not planning on going anywhere, and I can show you that by holding your hand or um, bringing you flowers or, you know, or, or little things like that. But but there were so many couples in the book that kind of showed us how they navigated um Tactically, they said, you know, approaching different subjects or, or doing different things with, with, with their with their significant other as well. So I, I really like that. Oh, I'm so glad you did that. It's just a great story, and it's so indicative of the other little things you can do in the book. Uh, another one we found that was interesting is that women don't give men enough compliments. Men actually compliment mm-hmm. women more, and so... You know, another thing couples could do is just saying, you know, a woman to her husband or, or, you know, committed relationship, you know, you look particularly handsome this morning. Or, mm-hmm. you know, when you um, negotiated that refrigerator, you did it so much better than I. I so admire the way you can talk to people and, and get change without, you know, anybody getting upset. You know, I mean, there's there's things almost every day we could compliment each other for. And it's another thing like holding hands or gifts. You start complimenting each other, you'll find that it starts to build, and pretty soon you're you're saying nice things about things you thought but didn't share before, and now the person really, really feels good. Well, and it kind of makes you stop and, and, and take inventory of, because it's it, it is easy just to kind of get it and take the other person for granted, and there's little things that they do that bug you, and then you just start thinking about those things all the time. But in the big scheme of things, it's really not important. And so those things become the easier things to concentrate on, and not really the, the, the great things and all the wonderful things that are making the relationship work. And it, it, it reminds you to start looking at, at those things. And, again, when you said compliments, that reminded me about my husband. I hadn't been complimenting him very much at all. In fact, I probably would be considered as, you know, kind of nitpicking at him sometimes, you know, and just pointing out in, in my 
way of thinking. It was to make him better, you know, was <laughs> pointing out the yeah. negatives so that he could change and be better when really he was really great to begin with, you know. And so that's what he needed to hear. And actually when I started concentrating on those things that made him the great guy that he was, I didn't even wasn't even thinking about those little nitpicky things anymore. Oh, I think it's wonderful. It's true. I mean, we we tend to, particularly women, we tend to want to make them better. And, you know, it's it's not not really a good tactic in general because, you know, most people want to be accepted for how they are or, you know, little things that, you know, like I like you to wear a blue shirt instead of a white shirt because I love what it does with your eyes. You know, those are great. But, you know, there's only so much helpful hints that anyone can get before they feel like, you know, they, everything they do isn't quite right. So we have to be really careful of that and at the very least balance it, you know, with all the good stuff. You know, let them hear good stuff. You know, you've told them they're a slob and you'd like them to pick it up, you know, a number of times, but it needs to be balanced with, you know, how creative they are or how hard uh, it was for them to come home for something and they did it and you appreciate it or what a smart, witty thing that was or et cetera. I mean, those things really balance things out. And if you don't give them, then everything starts to sound negative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, when you start putting your focus back on the positive thing that they're doing, it's good for you too because then you're not taking them for granted. It's reminding you to see. And that's what this book was so good about, was reminding you all of these little things that basically we did in the beginning of our relationship. I mean, these were right. standard you know, motives of operandi for for beginning a relationship. But then you look at us as we go along, and we lost a lot of that basic, basic things that that, that we loved in the beginning. Well, that's right. So just think about courting each other. You know, you'd have to do that. Even in a long-term marriage, you have to keep bringing in the things that make you feel lucky to be together. Even if you, as you say, are in a pretty happy marriage anyhow, um, there are things that could make it even better, even more romantic, you know, even more supportive. And, and why not do that? Why not get the best you can? Absolutely. Well, Dr. Schwartz, thank you for coming on and discussing this. I absolutely love the Normal Bar. I wanted to tell people they can go to the normalbar.com, and uh, you have lots of information on there. There's um, surveys that you can take. There's challenges. I love the challenges. What are the pet name challenges right now where you challenge each other to right. use a pet name for three days or something like that and, and see how that works. But the challenges are great. There's fitness and nutrition and romance just you know, easy little challenges um, to, to kind of get people warmed up and, and, and thinking in this way. And the book is, it, I mean, this book's going to stand the test of time, and no wonder everybody's talking about it and you're on the Today Show and everywhere else because it's fantastic eye-opening information, and it just goes back to reminding us where we need to be to help, help ourselves, for Pete's sakes, be happy. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be happy? <laughs> don't know but thank you for all those kind things i i uh of course i'm sitting here my heart's bursting with happiness <laughs> for all the things <laughs> you said about it it's great just great well thank you for coming on check out the normalbar.com order the book you can get it on amazon and any you know in any bookstore although there's not many bookstores left in the world anymore so we I know but amazon <laughs> And uh, thank you again for coming on. And I've signed up for the challenges, so I hope to be married oh, another 27 years. 
<laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for all the the nice words and and thank you for reaching our, out to our audience. And we hope that they'll get the book and that it will make their marriage even better for them. Absolutely, we all benefit from from more happy people in the world. And Absolutely. you know, kudos to, to Spain, France, and Italy for Pete's sake. My goodness, good for them. I know that's our next vacation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, thank you, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that was Dr. Pepper Schwartz, one of the uh, co-authors of The Normal Bar, Surprising Secrets of Happy Couples and What They Reveal. Um, And it's absolutely an interesting read, and it gives a lot of statistics compiled from over 100,000 couples all around the world. So like she was saying, France, Spain, Italy, um, Japan, uh, Thailand, China, just all over. And so it just gives a really great look into there is a formula that happy couples, it works for them. And in big numbers, universally, holding hands, pet names, sex three to four times a week. I know some, you know, that's kind of could be hard for uh, some of us to wrap our minds around, but, you know, you, you have to start somewhere and, um, uh, I, she was talking to Matt Lauer on the Today Show, and everybody was like three or four times. But but uh, happy couples are are doing that. They they like to be intimate with each other. Now your partner, for Pete's sake, you've been intimate with them before, so um, it shouldn't come as come as a, a big surprise. So check out the Normal Bar and sign up for some of their challenges. And uh, they also have some great surveys that you can be a part of. We're going to listen today and go out to Mill Frog's Love. I think that's appropriate for today. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. This is Lori Ness from NorthwestPrime.com. you
Love, love, love.